If you will take out your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we'll be reading our scripture text this morning, we'll be from there. This is technically a, uh, an Advent sermon, and I, I trust and I pray that just because Christmas is over, it does not mean that we can stop talking about uh, the incarnation of Jesus. And that's why, actually, it's important, and I, I have a, a high degree of, uh, I place a high degree of value on the way that Reverend Smith presents Advent as a whole, that it's not just about the first coming of Jesus, but about the second coming of Jesus. And we don't just think about it during the Christmas season, we think about it all the time. And much more than that, there's a, there's a, general, there's a general importance to the notion of, of what I want to call, at least within Reformed theology, incarnational theology. It encompasses an entire, the entire mode that we believe of, of the way that God entreats with and deals with mankind. It is not just that Jesus took on flesh, it is, it is also that in all of God's dealing with mankind, He condescends, He comes down and He stoops and He speaks to us as Calvin says in baby talk. He comes down to us in everything that he does. It is a mode of thinking about God's entire, entire dealing with mankind. So with that said, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows down to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around the wind goes and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you'll also turn to John chapter 1, we'll be reading there from verses 1 to 18. They say that uh, in seminary, you're not supposed to preach on Ecclesiastes for the first 20 years of your ministry. <laughs> I hope that I do justice to it this morning. I'm comforted that Reverend Smith has already gone through it, so you can just go back and listen to his as well. Um, I also have to say that I'm deeply indebted to uh, one minister in particular, as some of you know, uh, such as the Schultzes. Reverend Jesse Purcell from Providence OPC, he delivered a chapel at Westminster that has supremely influenced my thinking on uh, this first chapter and the way that I go about uh, addressing this text. So, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life, and, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came to bear witness. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we ask uh, in the name of Christ and by the help of your Spirit that you would give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear, uh, that you would comfort us with your word and and with the the beauty of the incarnation and the reality that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. The book of Ecclesiastes is uh, a scene in which the author ascends, as you will, much like if you're familiar with the tale Machiavelli, and he goes up to the mountain, he goes up, uh, he goes up away from the city, up from the muck and the mire of, uh, and, the, and the, the confusion and the cloudiness of, of life in this world to get a view of this world, to try and ascertain and, and get a lay of the land and, and see things out and see what, see what things look like from up there. And as he ascends uh, the mountain, he returns to give a report on the wisdom that he has gained. And and what's he see up there? What's that report? Verse 1, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. One of the difficulties of this book is uh, translating this term, hevel, vanity, as, as it's classically translated. One of my professors advocated to us to go with absurdity, and I think there's some wisdom in translating hevel, vanity, as absurdity particularly because of the way and the connotation that vanity has in our present evil age. It's, it's, not, just that, it's not that vanity is, is, is exactly wrong, so as to say, but that it gives an, a posture that is anti-creation. And the reality is, as the book of Ecclesiastes will exhort, is that creation is not inherently bad. It's not meant to be completely rejected. In fact, it's meant to be enjoyed. It's just a perspective of things in light of the complexity of life in an evil age where death is. The problem is not meaninglessness, it's not emptiness, it's not exactly vanity per se, but the problem, you know, creation is still meaningful, it's still filled with purpose and with good things that we ought to enjoy. My favorite is in chapter, chapter 7, he says, enjoy life with the wife of your youth. The problem, however, is the incalculable and 
inexplicable complexity of life in a sin-cursed world under the power of a sovereign God. And this is compounded by the fact of death, by the absurdity of it. It's unnatural. It gives to life a fleeting, a transitory, a ephemeral nature. It makes life much like grasping after wind. It's, it, 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 you can't quite put your hand on it. You can't quite grasp it. It's always just out of reach. Why is it absurd? Well, there's a sense in which life in a sin-cursed world flies in the face of our intuitive longing for harmony, for logic, for orderliness, and for explicability. And so there is a disparity, a, a, a lack of connection between what we expect should be the case in life and what we're actually met with in our experience. There's a disjunctive, conflicting nature to life, and that's what we call absurdity. It breaks the harmony, the justice, and the garden bliss that we intuitively long for. There are blatant contradictions that we don't get explanations to in life. Life in this world is absurd to that nature-like instinct we have for something better, for something more, for things to make sense, for things to work out, for the, for, for the, the, the comings and the goings and for the moment-to-moment -moment happenings of life to make sense and, and, and to be in accordance with the laws of this world. And it's in light of this vanity, it's in light of this absurdity that really the author of Ecclesiastes is asking as you come into this text, what were you expecting? And you're confronted in that moment. At least insofar as we come to terms with the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world, clearly we've been expecting the wrong thing. And his goal in in asking these questions, isn't so much to give us hope, but really to shock you into, the real, into reality, to look for a solution elsewhere. And so what he's going to do is he's going to put theory to the test. He's going to put verse 1, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. He's going he's to test that theory for you. Verse 2, what do you, what do you gain by all the toil with which you toil under the sun? It's a rhetorical question. Okay, it proves his point. Nothing. Absurdity is right. Nothing is gained. Things remain the same. There's no development in creation. Nobody gets by. What comes from dirt goes back to dirt. No matter what you do, no matter what you expect, it doesn't work out the way that you ought. You can't fill the earth and subdue it as Adam was intended to do. And you can't obey God to inherit consummation. You can't fix the world. You can't create harmony. Absurdity is what, what is and what will be. And so he's asking then, as he continues to analyze this problem, you want proof? Well, let's analyze it in creation and let's analyze it in our experience. And being, in being awakened to that reality, we'll find an absurd solution. So those are the three points that we'll consider. Absurd creation, absurd experience. Absurd solution. Take a look at with me at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
Here he's, I think, wrestling with the fact of death, with the, the, the reality of man's short time on this earth, and the fact that there should be cultivation, there should be development, there should be growth towards a kind of consummation. In fact, there should be eternity for man. But now you're, you're, you're born, you live, you die. How unutterably mundane. But the earth, that remains forever. And even within the earth, there's this kind of atrocity that faces its reality. Look at the cyclical nature of things. People come, people go to infinity and beyond, but nothing changes, not even in the earth. The generational trend and this generational curse continues on. Everyone and everything is stuck on this rock, and this rock is doomed to repeat its own cycles. And this cycle, this repetitiveness, is reflected in the order of the world itself. There's never a point where things reach, as it were, their, their final destination. Verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. And it will continue to do so forever. Verse 6, the wind goes down to the south and around and around and around and around. On its circuit, it returns. And verse 7, all streams run to the sea, but it never fills. And they just continue to flow and flow and flow. Back to the top, down to the bottom. And on its circuit, it goes. Creation itself in this, in this presentation as, as the author gives it to us is much like a hamster on a wheel. Going nowhere. Getting nowhere. Stuck forever. And the inference is almost you, that you can, you, can, you can plug all the things that you want in. You, 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 can, you can try to work in the sandbox if you will. But nothing is going anywhere, and it becomes dreary, it becomes static, and it's frustrating, and it shows within creation this longing for something more. Creation wants to see some kind of development and change for things to grow and for things to progress. You know, you're struck with this as a child in the most innocent of circumstances, I couldn't help but think as a, as a child when you're, you're uh, perhaps in particular when, when I was at one point playing with Hot Wheels and you get those orange tracks and your creativity is going wild and you think to yourself um, that you want to make a, a track where the, the, the car returns to the starting point and it goes and it goes and it goes and perhaps gets faster and suddenly you're struck with the reality of gravity. That, that, that no matter what you do, you can't achieve, at least without help, you can't achieve this progress in, uh, and develop in your cultivation, in your creative procedure. Everything is stuck. This achievement, this development is impossible. And I think at some level, and, and I, perhaps this is a bit of a stretch, but new creation reflects, what we hear of new creation in the New Testament reflects this unmet development and absurd repetition within creation. What we hear in the book of Revelation is that there will be no more sun. The cycle will end because God will be the light of the city. Streams will not flow and flow back to the place where they started because 
The river that runs through the city comes from the throne of God itself. There will be no more darkness. Creation then, as it now is, at least in this sin-cursed world, is is almost reflecting this chasing after wind, this, this absurdity, this unmet longing for development. But it's not just creation. We experience this in our lives too. This is our second point this morning. We run in circles grappling with and fighting with absurdity and with vanity, with this transience, with this short time and this short while that we're on the earth, with these things that fly in the face of our intuitive longings each and every day, with death every day. I mean, that's really the source of it. The author here understands that complexity and confusion of your experience, the madness, the mundaneness, the disappointments. He understands the complexity and the difficulty of life. Every human, I think, can immediately connect with the observations that he's making. There's, there's, there's something in life and in our experience that just doesn't quite add up. One author says, for goal-oriented, achievement-driven, and ambitious people, life may deal a disappointing hand mixed with grief, confusion, and disillusionment. There's a real sense in which life in a sinful world is absurd to our intuitive longing for harmony, for peace, for goodness, and justice. And in this lies the contradiction. It doesn't make sense for us. We're programmed different than what we see and the suffering that oftentimes barges its way in and knocks our doors down. And for the author, the proof for him is it's in the pudding. It's in the history of mankind's inexplicable or unutterable experience. In verse 7, he says, "All stream, excuse me, verse 8, All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. We we, we can't describe our experience of weariness. We can't see enough, we can't hear enough to make it make sense. And, And not only this, but no matter how much we see, no matter how much we hear, taste, touch, it doesn't satisfy, or it doesn't at least give a satisfying answer. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. We we can't do enough to change things, and we'll we'll, we'll keep just doing the same things that we've always done. And in verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, it has already been in ages before us? In these experiences, nothing is new. It's all happened before. How ironic. In verse 11, it will continue to happen and we'll forget about it. And then our children after us will come along and they'll forget about it. And their children and their children's children and so on and so forth. History repeats itself. It's like the sun and the wind goes around and around, even in our experience. Over and over again, this is the experience of people living in a synchronous world. And it's, it's almost unbearable. 
I think if you're anything like me as I wrestled with these 11 verses and what they mean, you sense that what he's saying is confusing and yet somehow it just makes sense of your experience. And I think that's part of the puzzle. The, the quintessential wise man is pictured here saying in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. We just can't utter it. it, it there's something inexplicable to it. What's the point of this whole thing? We're, we've come from dust. We're going, we're going back to dust. There's, there's no sense of development. Life is toilsome. What's the point? The earth remains the same and you die. You eat only to eat again. You clean only to clean again. You make your bed only to make it again. You go to sleep just to sleep again. You go through one year to start another one again and again. Now that's all very morbid. And it's not to say life is bad. That's not the whole point that the author will make. Life isn't all bad. I don't want to have you so downcast that you think that nothing here is good. But that's just not the point of this text. It's dealing with the absurdity. He's dealing with that complexity. And he is, uh, he is trying to understand it, to, to live with it. And he invites you to think about that. Because this is the reality of our experience. We have to come to terms with this reality. In the end, he, he's saying creation and history, they stand as a, as a law against us. You can't win here. You can't remain here. You can't balance the books. Nothing escapes the cycle of this futility in an age where sin and death remain. And so you will be frustrated. And when the Grim, Reap, Grim Reaper comes and the scales balance, there's, there's no escape and there's, there's no profit. And many, I think, of you are, are grappling with the reality of this experience. With the absurdity and the horrible circumstances of life that come your way. The loss of children. Repetitive visits to a children's hospital. Children who have forsaken the faith. Financial toil and hardship. A sense of meaninglessness in your work life, a sense of emptiness in your work life, dissatisfaction from sunrise to sundown. It flies in the face of our intuitive longing for something more. So what's the solution? Well, at some level, I think that we, we need to wait. We need to, we need to sit in this, this feeling of, uh, and this, the reality of this complexity. Um, I love one of the things that my professor said in seminary. This book is a trap for logisticians, for mathematicians, if you will. But what happens when we, when we stare this absurdity in the face, as the author invites? We're confronted. This, this world breaks everyone. Um, that desire for more, that desire for harmony, the desire to make sense of what's happened to us in our lives and to have some kind of explanation. One of my professors in college shared the story, uh, some, of, some of his stories with us, um, in some very tender and loving moments. Um, 
he got married young. He, he went to seminary, uh, got his degree, wound up preaching in a church. Uh, his wife wound up as the RD at Providence, at the college where I went to. And in um, the first couple of years of their marriage, they were blessed. They were, they were fruitful. They had several children. They did foster care. They were wonderful civic servants. They cared for the, the, the poorest of the poor. Orphans and children that have nobody to look after them. Helpless children. And um, soon after, his wife was diagnosed with cancer and she died. Uh, the right, ripe age of 30, leaving behind with him five children. And then soon after, the market crashed and he lost his job. And he found himself... He found himself at, uh, at a gas station after months of looking for a job. And uh, no money in the, in the bank on his way to a, another job interview. And he looked down at his wedding ring and he looked across the street and he saw a pawn shop. And he thought to himself in that moment, how did we get here? How, does, how do I make any sense of my experience of life? can't provide for my children. I've lost my wife. Faithful servants of the Lord God and faithful civic servants within the community. How does it make sense? This world breaks everyone and, and maybe it's broken you too. And the author understands that. He, he's not a, a logistician. He's not a mathematician. He says you can't avoid reality. It was always going to come. And it will continue to come. And so if absurdity is a, a trap for, for the mathematician, for the logistician, somebody who does logic, maybe it's indicative that we need an absurd solution. And in one sense, that's, that's what the author's doing here. He's not so much attempting to provide an answer a solution explicitly, that is to say, but maybe more so implicitly by showing us where it can't come from, by, by so dashing our hopes and our expectations of life in, in this world. He's a, a realist who, I, uh, who is, in some sense, providing reality to the disillusioned and to the delusional. And the answer is absurd, absurd because it's, it's not intuitive to us. It's not clear to us where the answer comes from. What's our habit when you, when you think about it? We, we, try to, we try to add maybe a, a, new, a new house, a new car, a new job. In our culture, you know, the, the old wife is just not, not the same anymore. You go get a new one out with the old and with the new. Everywhere we look, that's the, the habit that we're, we're used to. That, that's what feels right to us. Maybe we try to stay busy so that we don't have to face these realities. Or maybe like Dylan Thomas, we conclude that we must rage against the dying of the light and we remain all our lives long shaking our angry fists at God. But the author says um, that won't work. He's done it. Or it's, been, it's been done. It's been, it's been tried before. Nothing is new under the sun, and the rules and the order that we thought govern things does not pan out. The wicked prosper, the upright suffer, innocent are maimed, they're plagued with disease, poverty strikes, the pure in heart, the, the, the famished are, are struck with famine. As Reverend Purcell says, life ain't fair, 
you can't make sense of it, and it does not ask your permission to do what it does. It's confusing because this world is confusing, and it's a problem because this life is a problem. Um, So what's the solution? Well, into this world of sin, into this world of curse, into this world of destruction... enters the God-man. How absurd. So if it doesn't come by shaking our fists, if it doesn't come by distraction, if it doesn't come by addition, if it doesn't come by our toil and and our our, our (laughs) toilsome attempts to cultivate the ground, then it has to come from outside of creation. So why is the incarnation, we could ask here, why is the incarnation so important? Why should it be so important to us? Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's something that history has not seen before. That God takes on flesh and enters as a man, human experience, to walk in our shoes as we walk and to solve this dilemma for us. Never before had God done this. In this way. And so it's good and right and proper that we say in light of the incarnation. Behold a new thing that eye has not seen nor ear heard. In him then that life. That he has. Is one that the darkness, the brokenness and the chaos of this world. Cannot overcome. He comes to offer a solution to this absurdity. He gives deliverance from this madness by giving to you and I, as John says, a new birth. Not of blood, nor of the will of man. That's been done. That's been tried before. But of the will of God. The solution, behold. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. In this we see something that that satisfies our seeing. In this, we hear something that satisfies our hearing. A better word, if you will. A word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There are some who link the name Abel with, um, in Hebrew, Avel, with the Hebrew word Hevel as they try to figure out the semantic origin of the word. And truly, I think you can find few examples of something more hevel, more absurd, more, van- more expressive of vanity. A brother who murders his brother. But this word that satisfies our hearing speaks a better word than that vanity. And this bread and this wine speak, rather speak to our sense experience, our seeing, our hearing, our our, our tasting, our touching, than anything anywhere else. In this we see something that satisfies our hearing. In this word we hear something that satisfies our hearing. And so into this world of no gain, God gave his only begotten son to 
make all things new. God sent his only begotten son into a world of chaos, of disorder, of brokenness, of of destruction, of cruelty, of sin. Of people who are breaking themselves upon this cursed ground to be broken by the world and to be shattered on that cross. And it broke him there. As he shed his own blood and poured it out to the point of death. God, in the person of the Son, entered the disorder, the brokenness of our world, and it broke him. And it's through that death that the absurdity would be defeated, that that death would be defeated, because the grave could not hold him. Advent then celebrates this first and foremost entrance of God into the world. It recognizes the ways that it delivers us from this common curse, the first aspect of the common curse from God's judgment. Now the incarnation, strictly speaking, doesn't change reality now. The world is still absurd. You are very plainly, and I am very plainly, struggling with, and groaning against, and creation is very plainly, as Paul says, grappling and, 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 and pressing against the absurdity and the brokenness and the disorder of this world. It's just not hopelessly absurd. We recognize this absurdity. We can have peace about it because we know that we don't need an answer to absurdity that makes sense to our intuitive longings, but we know that that answer came in the form of a manger. And the reason that it's not hopelessly absurd and why we have peace about it is because Advent and Christmas is not just about Jesus' first coming, but about his second coming too. The reason that it is not hopelessly absurd and why we have peace is because the most absurd thing about this world, death, is solved in the resurrection and ascension and return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will raise our bodies to be like his own. So the absurdity just isn't serious anymore. What is serious is that death will be no more, and there shall be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things will have passed away. And we look forward to that resurrection as the sure solution and final word to the absurdity and the chaos and the brokenness and the atrocity of sin. Pray with me. Our great God and Father, we give you thanks and we give you praise for the entrance of Jesus Christ, our Lord, into the brokenness of our experience. We do have one who suffers as we have suffered, and now he sits as our high priest in that heavenly place making intercession for us. So we come to you, Jesus our King there, and we ask your help and your aid, and that you bring that to the Father. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.